So actually, what I want to do tonight is we look at uh, the book of Philippians. That's a book in the New Testament. And if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to turn there. I'm going to actually just start this message off tonight by reading um, the passage that we're going to look at, which is Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 26. So as you're hearing this and you're wondering, what is this about? You know, give me some context here. Don't worry, we're going to get there. I'm going to actually start out with reading it first, though, and then we're going to get into all that. So uh, this is uh, the book of Philippians, chapter 1. Paul and Timothy servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you, and all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. And if I were Presbyterian, this is the part where I would say, this is the word of the Lord. You guys would all say, thanks be to God. But I'm not Presbyterian, so you guys don't have to do that. Okay, so starting tonight, and for probably the next 10 weeks, we're going to be looking at the book of Philippians. And the book of Philippians is one of the many books in the Bible that was written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, Paul was someone who lived shortly after the time of Jesus, and he was, without a doubt, the most significant Christian missionary of the early church. I mean, as with all of Paul's books, uh, this book is actually a letter. Uh, This is a letter that was written to a church in a city called Philippi, which was just north of modern-day Greece. And it was a church that Paul had planted. And this is a short little letter. It's got four chapters. But what's it about? What's it about? 
I, I want to make the case to you that there's a common theme in all four of these chapters. And the theme, um, as Paul actually puts it himself in verse 12 here, is the theme of the advance of the gospel. The advance of the gospel. So, for example, if you're wanting to just get a sense of this, in chapter 1, Paul explains that all of his hardships that have happened to him, they've actually served to advance the gospel. And then in chapter 2, um, he talks about the gospel advancing not through suffering so much as through service. So chapter 1, through suffering. Chapter 2, through service. Chapter 3, he talks about how the gospel has advanced through standing against false teaching. And then finally in chapter 4, about how the gospel has advanced through sacrifice. So if you wanted to have a quick outline of the book, you could say that in each chapter you get some new way that Paul is saying, look, the gospel's advanced. And so as you can see in this letter, Paul is going to explain for us how the gospel moves forward, how it advances. And what's interesting to me about this, he is going to tell us specifically how the gospel advances in community, in community. And so what that actually means is that this book poses a question for us, even as we look at it just uh, for the first time tonight. And the question is, what would it look like to be a community that moves forward uh, the work of God? You know, what would it be to actually be a community uh, that actually makes an impact, that actually, um, you know, kind of is, the, the world is better for the fact that group existed? And so just hold that question in your mind as we look at this book. And, and as we look at this, this first part of the teaching tonight, I'm just going to focus in on the first 11 verses. I read more of the chapter just to give you some context, which we'll bring in in a few minutes. But I'm just going to look at verses 1 through 11 primarily, and I'm going to look at it under three headings. So, number one, we're going to see something here, first of all, about, well, what are we talking about? Number one, what is the advance of the gospel? Number two, why should we advance the gospel? And then number three, how can we advance the gospel? So, what is it? Why should we do it? And number three, how do you do it? How can you do it? So this first thing, uh, what, what are we talking about here? You know, the gospel, advancing the gospel. That all sounds very churchy. <laughs> uh, how do you, what, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, one of the questions that this book raises um, is, is probably a question that I would imagine just about every single person who's sitting in this room has asked themselves at some point. And it's the question, what is your purpose? What is your purpose? You know, what, what, what are you here for? What are you living for? Uh, I think it was Mark Twain who said, there are two, the, the two most important days of your life, number one, the day that you're born, and number two, the day you find out why. Number one, the, the most, first most important day is the day you were born. The second most important day is the day you find out why. And there are a lot of things that you could be living for. There are a lot of things that you could be pointing to for purpose um, in the 21st century. You could live to fulfill your dreams. Uh, you could live to try to fulfill your career goals. You could live for money or for travel. Uh, you could live for a cause. Uh, you could live uh, for a humanitarian cause, uh, like eliminating food insecurity or, or creation care. You could live for a political cause, whether that's on the, the left or on the right. You could live for a justice cause, uh, racial justice, fighting abortion, caring for the poor. But what's interesting about what Paul says here in this chapter is if you look at verse 5, he's telling you, he's hinting at what he sees his own purpose to be. And it's something different. And so look at verse 5. In verse 5, he uses a little phrase here. He speaks of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So, so partnership in the gospel, literally that means fellowship. It means sharing. And, and, and that could refer to a lot of different things. But from the context of the letter, at the very least, we know that this, at minimum, is referring to the fact that this group of Christians that he's writing to 
have been supporting Paul financially. You know, Paul's a missionary. Uh, some of you might have grown up in churches or with families that supported missionaries. You know, so a missionary is simply someone who leaves home and goes somewhere else, usually some other country, in order to spread the Christian message to those who haven't heard it. And, and typically, maybe you know this from, from your church, from your family, that, that in order to stay in touch with their community back home, a missionary will send out a missionary newsletter, you know, so sort of an update to all the people that are, are praying for them and supporting them about what's going on. Well, okay, when Paul is referring to, to partnership in the gospel, he's basically saying, like, look, I'm writing you guys a missionary newsletter. Like, you guys are, are you, you have my back, you've been supporting me. I'm writing you this, you actually know what's going on. And so what this means is that it's pointing to Paul as a man with a mission, uh, he, in fact, he's so committed to the mission that he's on that he's actually writing this letter from jail. So if you notice there, you know, he talks a little bit later on in the, the other stuff that we read about how he's in chains and how as a result of that, like he's, he's not free to go out and about. And yet he's still able to say, despite the fact that I'm literally chained to a Roman soldier right now, God is at work. God is at work. And you may not be chained to a Roman soldier tonight. Um, in fact, I don't see any Roman soldiers in this room, so I'm just going to assume uh, that I'm accurate about that. I don't like to be too, you know, assuming because I don't want to get prideful here. But, I, you know, I, just, I think I can make that assumption. And, you know, you may not be chained to a Roman soldier tonight, but you might be chained to something else. And, in fact, it might feel like the church is chained to all kinds of something else's. You know, maybe you're thinking right now about, like, the coronavirus pandemic. We, you know, Thrive is a multi-church ministry. You guys come from all different churches in this area. I don't know exactly what the situation at the church that you may attend is right now, but it may be good. It may not be so good. This has been hard on a lot of churches. So maybe you feel like your church is chained by the pandemic. Maybe you feel like your church is chained by politics and that politics has come to take a greater place in your church than Jesus. You know, that can be something that can be a chain. But the point is, Paul was so convinced that even though I've literally got this chain around my wrist, the gospel is not chained. The gospel's not chained. And in fact, one of the things that led me to, to this particular book is in in that very fact, um, you know, look, if you're just of the opinion that, you know, man, we just kind of have to coast through this pandemic and there's nothing that we can really do and it's just all horrible and terrible, I just want you to know you might be missing out. You might be missing out. If anything, I believe this may be one of the greatest opportunities that God has ever given the church to be the church. So don't miss that. It wasn't in my notes, by the way. This kind of came out of me. <laughs> Thanks, David. So, so the question, though, is what, what is Paul's mission? You know, it, it's the advance of the gospel, but just let's unpack that a little bit. What does it actually mean to be a guy like Paul who says, like, my purpose for living, the thing that I'm about, is, is pushing the ball forward of, of the good news of the gospel? And, and to do that, what I'm going to do I don't even know if I can actually pull this off. I'm going to, in the course of about three minutes, I'm going to give you a summary of the entire Bible to answer this question, okay? So what I'm going to do, I'm going to, I'm going to literally set my stopwatch here, and I'm going to see if I can do this. You guys can time me too if you want to hold me accountable. Accountability, that's a very Christian word, right? <clears throat> so what, what is the gospel? What is the thing that Paul is trying to share with other people? Ready, set, start. Okay. If you want it in one sentence, the message of the gospel is that you can't save yourself, but Jesus can. You can't save yourself, but Jesus can. If you were to think about every religion, every worldview, in fact, every single person, 
the common denominator that we would all share is that we would all agree that the world is not as it should be, that it's broken, it's messed up, it's full of pain, it's full of violence. The differences come with what, what, what do you do about that? And every religion, I would say, actually has something in common um, with all the others except for Christianity. The common denominator is that the solution is to be found in your performance. So for example, in Buddhism, you have to follow the Four Noble Truths. You have to follow the Eightfold Path. And if you do that well enough, you can free yourself from the illusion of this world. Hinduism, live a good life, get enough karma. Don't get reincarnated as an ant. And if you do that and kind of climb up the karma ladder enough, you'll be free of the cycle of incarnation altogether. Islam, follow the five pillars. If you do that well enough, if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds on Judgment Day, you get to go to heaven. And by the way, this is not just religions. This is, this is the way it works even in our secular society. So let's say you're trying to find a job. Some of you may be trying to find a job right now. The interview is really just an audition. I mean, they're, they're sizing you up. They're trying to check out your resume. They're evaluating your performance. Or let's say that you're trying to find a, a spouse. You know, dating in the 21st century really is a lot more like marketing. You know, if you want to find someone who's to, to, to marry and you don't want that person to dump you, then you, you're kind of forced to like impress the other person and to hide your flaws, which in the end means that you're never actually loved for you. You're, you're loved for a fake image of you. It's just marketing. So what these all have in common is that there's a problem with the world and the solution is you fix it. You fix it. But Christianity is the complete opposite. The message of Christianity is you can't fix it, but Jesus can. And the reason the Bible is so long is because it's one big story designed to show you this. So first, you've got Adam and Eve. They're in the middle of the garden. They sin. They break paradise. And in response, God comes and he says with, with a promise that one day he's going to come in and fix it. And he tells you he's going to do that by sending a savior who comes from the family of Abraham. Then he tells you that savior is going to come from the family of Abraham through the family of David. And yet, the whole Old Testament story is about how those very families, the people of Israel, that were meant to be God's special representatives on earth to show people what he's like, instead sinned and, and made things even worse. And so finally, you come to Jesus Christ. He did what none of us was able to do. Jesus lived the life that we should have lived. He died the death that we should have died. Which means that we're saved not by what we can do, we're saved by what Jesus did. And if we're saved by what Jesus did, then our identity isn't grounded in our performance. We don't have to prove to anyone that we're enough. We don't have to pretend that we're someone that we're not. And we don't have to impress God in order to be loved because God has already taken care of that. God can't love you right now any more than he already does. And the proof of that is that he sent Jesus to die on the cross as a substitute in your place. And so while other religions say do, Christianity is a religion of done. While other religions say, here's some good advice to follow, Christianity says, here's some good news to be believed. And that's the gospel. And that was a little more than three minutes, but I kind of threw in some other stuff that was more than just a summary of the Bible. So have mercy upon me. And actually, you know what? That was only three minutes and like 45 seconds. That's pretty... Decent. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Thank you. Oh, thanks, Allison. <laughs> if you guys didn't hear what she said, she said, great performance. Ah, oh, good one. So, so the gospel is that you can't save yourself, but Jesus can. And that's the message that Paul is giving his life to spread. Because he knows it's good news. He knows that finally... <laughs> 
a moment has come in history where people can actually have hope that you don't have to just flounder around drowning because there's finally a rescuer who's come to rescue you. Paul wants people to know that, so he's given his life to share it. Now, what I want to point out, though, is that you know, we're not just talking about what the gospel is. We're also talking about, well, what does it mean for the gospel to advance? And what I want to show you is that the gospel is a message that's different from every other world religion. And that actually means that it advances in a totally different way than every other message. So think about how causes move forward. So some people advocate for causes through war or through violence. You know, some would advocate through coercion and propaganda. Is that how the gospel advances? I mean, I should say, is that how the gospel should advance? I mean, I hate to say the fact that, unfortunately, in Christian history, sometimes it has done it in those, those incorrect ways. But the answer is no. And in fact, Paul tells you here that the advance of the gospel is going to look like something totally different than the way that every other cause moves forward. So look at this. In the verses we read earlier, you know, Paul basically opens his letter by saying, you know, man, I'm so thankful for you Philippians. Like, we've got the same mission. You know, we're on the same team. You guys are my partners. You guys are sharing in, in, in what I'm doing here. You're, you know, you're praying for me. You, you guys have helped me out financially so that I can keep doing what I'm doing. And then in verses 9 through 11, he starts praying for them. And listen to what he says. He prays that their love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, if you were to paraphrase that, what he's praying for here is actually their character. That when he talks about being pure and blameless and having the fruit of righteousness in your life, he's talking about their character. And then at the end of verse 11, did you notice that he states here that that is going to bring glory to God? So he's basically saying, like, look, the way for God to be glorified, the way for his cause and for his message to be advanced in the world is for you guys to just be formed into people who are like Jesus. You know, so imagine if, you know, Paul were here today. And, and, you know, imagine that Paul were to, like, show up uh, in your pastor's office and, and, and were to, like, look over your church's outreach budget. And if we were to ask him, you know, Paul, like, hey, you're, you're a really wise guy. You wrote a bunch of the Bible. Like, where should we be putting our time and our money if we want to, like, be a part of God's work? Like, if we want to advance the gospel? We'd probably say, you know, look, it's not putting money into social media ads. It's not, like, putting money into Christian television programs or a new sound system or a bigger church building he'd probably say, your top outreach priority should be to get Christians to live like Christ. One of my uh, uh, classes, and well, actually, it wasn't a class I had to take in college. I, I almost had to take this class in college. I, I, I got out of it. But if I, if I had taken that class in college, everyone in the class had to read a book that was called Shantung, uh, Shantung Compound. Anyone ever read this book before? If you're a Whitworth grad, you probably have read this book. But uh, th th this is a book that was, it's a memoir. And it's written by a guy named Landon Gilkey. And he was a, he was a, like a very highly educated university professor. And, and through a number of different circumstances, he wound up becoming interned in a Japanese camp during World War II. And he was one of many, many people who were in this camp. There were all kinds of foreigners who had been put there. And at first, Langdon Gilkey was really, really excited about what he was getting to experience. He, he believed, um, as, a, as a highly educated, secular person, that human nature was essentially good. Um, he assumed that 
this, this, all these prisoners would kind of come together and form a little micro-civilization, and that they would get through this hard time together. And at first, that's exactly what happened. They, they began to come together and to organize, and they really were able to kind of live as this little harmonious uh, l- little group. Well, eventually, months go by, and all of a sudden, kind of the lesser parts of their human nature began coming out. And, and he realized that he was in a petri dish for observing what the human heart is really like. And he actually had kind of a crisis, uh, you know, sort of a philosophical crisis. Langdon Gilkey looks around and he says, you know, look, I thought that we'd be able to overcome our selfishness, that we could sacrifice for one another to hold this little community together. But and as a matter of fact, it was the complete opposite. People were, were selfish, self-centered, you know, taking things for themselves and, and letting others suffer as a result. And in fact, he pointed out that there were many missionaries, Christian missionaries who were in this camp, and sometimes they were the worst people of all because they would be jerks, but then they would try to justify it. <laughs> But, but, there's a part in his book where he mentions that there was one man that he met in the camp who was completely different than everyone else. And it was a guy named Eric Little. So if you've ever seen the movie Chariots of Fire, um, this is a movie that's actually about Eric Little. Uh, That movie focuses on his career as an Olympic runner. But uh, what may not be as known is that Eric Little was a Presbyterian missionary to China. And he wound up in this camp with Langdon Gilkey. And when Eric Little was in this camp, he had a special burden to minister to the teenagers who were interned in the camp. And and what made him stand out was that he was full of a genuine life and love. He was full of good humor. He had a sacrificial kindness about him. And as Langdon Gilkey, this, this secular person who really didn't have a whole lot of affection for Christianity, as he watched Eric Little sacrifice himself for the young people of the camp, it changed his life. And he wrote about Eric Little, that he, he said about him, it's rare indeed when a person has the good fortune to meet a saint, but he came as close to it as anyone I've ever known. So do you see the power of even just one person who is living like Jesus, who is filled with the fruit of the Spirit and embodies a character like the character of Christ? What Paul's saying here is that that is one of the primary ways the gospel advances, and therefore, it's going to look totally different than every other cause that might advance through war, through violence, through coercion, through political power, through propaganda. The way the gospel advances is fundamentally different. So, that's what the advance of the gospel is, kind of the first thing he kind of hints at in this letter. But now there's sort of the second question. The second question is, okay, wait a minute, Paul. Why have you put all of your eggs in this basket. Second question is, why should we advance the gospel? Because just stop and think about this for a minute. You know, if you, if you take stock of what Paul is saying, what he's saying here is that if you want to advance the gospel, you know, be like Jesus. Uh, people are going to see that. People are going to say, look, you know, you've got something that I want. There's a reality to your life. But if you're the one who, who's actually trying to do that, just think of what you're asking for. I mean, to advance the way of Jesus is to follow Jesus, but following Jesus means this. These are Jesus's own words. He says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. Jesus was was the embodiment of perfect love. You know, love means that you, you give yourself away. You, you lay yourself down for the sake of another person. You know, if we're actually asking to follow in the way of Jesus, to advance the way of Jesus, 
what you're really signing up for is this. And so the case Paul is making, you know, he's saying like, look, my purpose in life and the purpose that I want for you, the only thing that really is worth living for is to give yourself away. It's to die to yourself. And so my question is, why would you ever want to do that? You know, like, have you noticed that that's not what the culture is saying right now? Do you realize that if you are following Jesus in this way, that you are extremely countercultural? And evidently, by the way, um, there's, there's sort of an indication that this might have been a problem that the Philippians had. So look at, look at verse 10 really quickly. And, uh, and just notice that when Paul is praying for them, one of the things he actually prays for here, um, he, he prays for discernment. He says, uh, you know, look, I want you guys to be able to discern what is best. Now, why would he pray that? Well, the problem that these guys are facing is is this problem of discernment. You know, they're probably thinking about, you know, just what their priorities in life are. And Paul says, look, like, you have a lot of different things that you could apply yourself to. You have a lot of different things that could be your animating purpose in life. My prayer for you is that you'll actually see what really is best, which, you know, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, I think is this. You know, that's what Paul would say. Now, I, I just want to think about what is so hard for us as human beings to actually, like, get on the same page that Paul's on here in Philippians. Um, two things I want to point out. Two problems. The first thing, the first problem that we have, you know, we're all looking for happiness in some form or another. You know, like, every single person, I think, has a, a longing for joy, a longing for fulfillment. Uh, but, but there are two problems with human nature in that pursuit. Number one is that we don't actually know what really makes us happy. We might think that we do. I would just propose to you that we really don't. So, so... Uh, think about this, like the, the common cultural narrative is that if you want to find your purpose, if you want to find you know, your dreams so that you can fulfill them, just look deep within your heart and you're going to find your purpose. You're going to find yourself. Now, does this actually work? I don't think so. And I can kind of just say this from personal experience because have you noticed that whenever you look inside yourself, like your desires are constantly changing? You know, like one day on Monday, you wake up and say, man, I really want to do this in life. And then you wake up on Tuesday, you're like, well, actually, yeah, I don't know. I want to do something else. You know, human beings are fickle. The grass is always greener on the other side. Uh, listen to this. Here's a quote. Uh, this is so good. Someone asks, how do you come to understand what you really want out of life? People often think that looking into your heart to figure out your desires is the easy part. It's the pursuit of happiness, of fulfilling your deepest desires that takes so much energy. But that's simply not the case. The truth is, you don't know what will make you happy. And uh, like, like, you know, pretend I'm an attorney here. I'm going to call to the stand my expert witness to try to make this case to you. And my expert case is Netflix. Netflix. Think about this. Okay, so have you ever had Showverload? Where like you're, you're, you're sitting on the couch, maybe you're like with your boyfriend or girlfriend or something. He's like, oh, let's watch something on Netflix. But hey, what should we watch? And so you kind of scroll through, okay, here are all the new releases, okay, none of those look really good. And then you kind of look at, okay, here's all the action-adventure movies, and here's all the dramas, and, and here's all the, the, the chick flicks, we're going to skip over those, uh, you know. And, <laughs> and then, like, you just sit there for 30 minutes, and you never actually pick a movie. And by the time you might even make a choice, like, you're so, like, worn out from showverload that you don't actually want to watch anything after all. So look, like, we don't even truly have a good compass for what is going to truly fulfill us. And so, like, should, you know, I, I would just be very cautious about even kind of trusting myself to know what that is. Second problem is that let's say that we, we might even kind of think to ourselves, yes, I do know what I want, and we go after it. 
If you actually get that thing, what, makes, what you think makes you happy is not going to satisfy. It's not going to satisfy. So, uh, okay, I'm back in attorney mode again. I'm going to call another expert witness to the stand. This time, sorry guys, Tom Brady. Tom Brady. Um, I, you know, I'm so out of touch with football. I did watch the game uh, on Sunday where Russell Wilson made that 94-yard drive. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> First time in franchise history. Yeah. Uh, I do know that. But, okay, imagine, imagine that I'm standing next to Tom Brady. He's, you know, he's got muscles in places where I don't even have places. Uh, <laughs> uh, let me read you something. Let me read you something that Tom Brady once said in an interview. And this was after he had already won several Super Bowls. Um, he was 27 at the time. And, and these are, I, I believe these are his exact words. Listen to this. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. <laughs> Me, I think, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27. And what else is there for me? And then the interviewer asks him, what the, what's the answer? Brady says, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I mean, I think there's part of me trying to go out and experience other things. I love playing football, and I love being a quarterback for this team. But at the same time, I think there's a lot of other parts about me that I'm trying to find. I mean, look at that. Like, one of the best quarterbacks in history. Sorry, David. He's got three Super Bowl rings, and he still is able to say, like, look, I feel empty. I got what I wanted, and it was nothing. I climbed to the top of the mountain. There was nothing there. So we don't actually know what makes us happy, problem number one. And problem number two, when we get what we think we want, it doesn't actually satisfy. Now, the Bible actually has a word for this. And the word that it uses is the word idolatry. You know, when you think of an idol, you might think of a, like an ancient statue or something. But in the Bible, an idol is simply anything that you look to for purpose or significance. And everyone has something that they're looking to for those things. What I want to actually do to demonstrate this is read to you um, a painfully accurate list um, out of this book that's a demonstration of just how many examples uh, there might be of things that you can look to to find a sense of purpose that's never going to satisfy. So as I'm reading these, I want you just to listen, and I want you to ask yourself, which of these hit home for me? Which of these am I looking to for my own sense of identity and purpose and satisfaction? Number one, I only have worth if I have power and influence over others. That's power idolatry. I only have worth if I'm loved and respected by a certain person. That's approval idolatry. I only have worth if I'm able to get mastery over my life in the area of fill-in-the-blank. It's control idolatry. I only have worth if people are dependent on me and need me. That's helping idolatry. I only have worth if someone is there to protect me and keep me safe. It's dependence idolatry. 
And then here's the opposite. This is independence idolatry. I, am, I only have worth if I'm completely free from obligations or responsibilities to take care of someone. Uh, this is one I'm guilty of. I only have worth if I'm highly productive in getting a lot done. That's work idolatry. I only have worth if I'm being recognized for my accomplishments and I'm excelling in my work. You could call that achievement idolatry. Now this one is, is especially interesting. Um, I only have worth if I'm adhering to my religion's moral codes and accomplish in its activities. You could call that religion idolatry. But then there's also irreligion idolatry. So I only have worth if I feel I am totally independent of organized religion and am living by a self-made morality. Uh, this is a particularly relevant one right now. I only have worth if my race and culture is ascendant and recognized as superior. Racial idolatry. I only have worth if a particular social grouping or professional grouping or other group lets me in. Uh, and this is, they, they call this one inner ring idolatry. Uh, just a couple more. I only have worth if my children and or my parents are happy with me. That's family idolatry. Uh, this one, man, this may be relevant for us as young adults. Uh, relationship idolatry. I only have worth if Mr. or Mrs. Wright is in love with me. I guess I should say miss. Most of us are single in here. Uh, okay, uh, a couple more. Um, I only have worth if I'm hurting and a problem uh, because only then do I feel worthy of love or able to deal with guilt. That's suffering idolatry. And then one final one. I only have worth if I have a particular kind of look or body image. Image idolatry. So, this is, you know, all, all of us are probably somewhere on that list, yeah? Like, every single human looks to something for their sense of purpose, looks for something for their sense of significance. And the problem is, we turn to idols. We turn to things that are good, but that we then try to make into God. And every single one of those things even if you get it, it's ultimately going to let you down. And so the problem that we face is that, you know, even if we really were to say to ourselves, man, like, I love, Paul, what you're saying. Like, I would love to be a part of a cause that's greater than myself. I would love to be a part of the greatest cause there is on planet Earth, which is the cause of God and the gospel. The problem is, is that our hearts aren't necessarily there yet. Because every single one of us is going to look to other things other than God in order to fulfill and satisfy us. So the question is, what is it going to take to actually do this? And what is it going to take to actually have the power in your life to live a life of self-sacrifice, a life that's lived for others rather than just for yourself? I think a lot of us want that life. The question we're left with is how do you actually do it? So the final thing I want to look at tonight um, is this third question. Uh, we looked at what is the advance of the gospel? We looked at why should we advance the gospel? And then the last thing, how can we advance the gospel? How is this even possible? How can you be free of selfishness? And for that, I want you to look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. The answer, basically, is that it all goes back to the gospel. Uh, verse 6 is basically just telling you, like, look, God is going to do it. Like, you can't save yourself, and you can't sanctify yourself. Only God is going to be able to do it. And when you realize what that means, 
that God hasn't just saved you just so that you can be like a really reliable player on his team. You know, he hasn't saved you just so that he can get something out of you. Like God doesn't need anything from you. The only reason that he has called you is because he loves you. He wants a relationship with you. If God is a triune God, then what that means is that life is really all about relationships of love. And that's why Jesus came and did what he did. And so if you really realize that like God is the one who actually is more concerned about your life than you are. He's more concerned with your walk before God than you are. And when you realize the price that he's paid to do that by sending his own son to die as a substitute in your place, that's going to ultimately change the thing that kind of occupies that number one slot in your heart. You know, I don't know what it is right now. Maybe as I read that list of idols, you might have thought, oh boy, like one of those things actually is in the number one slot of my heart. And you feel like you're kind of addicted to it. Like, man, I don't want to be chained to someone else's approval, but I am. You know, I don't want to be chained to like my sense of like accomplishments, but I, but I am. Well, you can't change your behaviors by just pointing at your heart and saying change. Your heart has to be, your heart has to be transformed from the inside out. And the gospel is the way to do that. The gospel is the way to do that. Like the gospel is just a, a pointer to the goodness and graciousness of God. And when you gaze at that, um, that, that, that's where transformation comes from. And what that actually does is it puts God in that top spot. You begin to realize, you know, like the more I think about how good God has been to me, the more I don't want to live for other people's approval. Like I don't need that anymore because like my soul is already full. You know, I don't need to live for, you know, <laughs> this, this like boyfriend or girlfriend or, or for my family's approval or for this other person's approval. I don't need that because I've got him. I've got him. And when you've got him, you're actually going to probably find that some of the things that Paul says in this letter as we look at it over the next couple of weeks are going to make a lot more sense. As we look at this letter, what you're going to see is that Paul is bouncing off the walls with joy because, not because he has to uh, advance the gospel, because he gets to. And he's going to tell us that there is no greater joy than finding your life's purpose and serving that and serving him. And when your heart is driven by the gospel, you'll find that, you know, it's not a matter of have to, it's a matter of want to. And just as we close tonight, I actually want to read you um, a couple of lines from two old hymns, which I've actually smashed together here. So these are two hymns, two different people who wrote them. Uh, But this just sort of puts a finger on what the gospel does. Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. To see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. To see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. And so as we look at this letter over the next couple of weeks, as we look at this theme of advancing the gospel, I wanted to start out here tonight by talking about what it actually looks like Um, to to just approach that subject at the level of the heart. And in the gospel, um, that's possible. So uh, we're going to close this out now. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to move into brand new small groups. So would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for this teaching. Um, Would you just help us to just be set free uh, from any idols, anything that we are looking to um, as a God thing um, rather than as simply a good thing? And Lord, would you help um, our hearts just be turned around, transformed, transfixed, by Jesus so that he might have that number one spot in our hearts 
and that we might experience joy and freedom in that. In his name, amen.